Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. Jesus in my heart, and I know that I cannot lose Jesus. The good news is, anything that I know, you can know. And that's the whole purpose of this series on I Know. Because assurance will give you confidence in your walk with Christ and confidence in your work for Christ. The reason a lot of people just kind of sit and stare and don't do anything for God is because they don't have the the confidence that comes with knowing that you know God. I remember the first time Lee and I went to San Francisco out in California, and I remember two things about that place the first time we went there. One, we went out to the huge bridge on San Francisco Bay, that famous bridge, and we went out to Alcatraz, which is the only time I've ever been in prison, and we actually, you know, went inside the cell and, and uh, took our picture inside that, uh, in Alcatraz. And uh, we, you know, spent some time looking at that bridge. It was built in 1937 at the cost of $77 million. That, is, that was a lot of money then. It's a lot of money now, but it was really a lot of money then. And when they were working on the... The other thing I remember about San Francisco was that we went to this little restaurant and got an apple dumpling. See, I remember everything by food, usually. <laughs> and the rest of that week, you know, go back to the bridge or go get the apple dumpling. And I always chose the dumpling. But this bridge, while they were building that first span, those guys working, you know, they got higher and higher, and it was very dangerous, very risky. The icy waters below, and 23 men fell to their death. Now, they knew they had to do something. They had to, uh, to do something to prevent that. And so they spent another $100,000, and they, uh, they built this safety net under these workers. And as they finished that second span, only 10 men fell, and none were lost. But here was the thing that surprised them. Building the second span, productivity increased 25%. You see, when they, when they felt confident and secure, they could work and work efficiently. And they were so much more productive. And that's the same thing in God's work. If we're going to be productive and effective and fruitful in serving God, we need that confidence and that assurance. Because I'm telling you, you would be shocked, you'd be astounded to know how many people who claim to be believers, who go to church, but who still believe you can be saved and then lost and then saved and then lost and then saved and then then lost. And it's hard to get them out of that. Do you think, just in your normal thinking mind, do you think that when the angel writes the name in the Lamb's book of life, then a few months later goes back and rubs it out, then comes back and writes that name in, and then comes back and rubs that name out? 
Johnny was talking to Billy, and he said to Billy, my daddy has a list of people he can whip, and your daddy is at the top of the list. <laughs> well, Billy goes home, and he tells his daddy. He said, Johnny told me that his daddy had a list of men he could whip, and your name was the top of the list. And he said, is that what he said? Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll settle that. So he goes over to Johnny's house, knocks on the door. Johnny's daddy comes to the door. And he said, uh, my son tells me that your son, son said that you had a list of men you could whip, and I was at the top of your list. Did you say that? Yes, I did. Well, then I would like to say, just try it. You can't do it. What are you going to do about it? He said, I'm going to take your name off the list. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's not that easy to get off of God's list. That once that name is written, that name is permanent. And it will always be there. And I, I'm thrilled to know that my name is written down in glory and nothing can ever erase it. Today we conclude this section on, on assurance. It's taken me three weeks to deliver this sermon. One, one reason is because you don't listen quickly enough. But the other is because I want, I want to know that you know God and that you know God. You know that you know God and that you know you cannot lose your salvation. Because the only thing better, remember, than being saved is to know that you know you're saved and to know that you can never lose your salvation. And that's the most important thing that you can know. Because listen to me. If you are wrong about knowing God, it doesn't matter what you're right about. If you are wrong about Jesus and you don't have him in your heart, it doesn't matter what else you have. So we're talking about the most important thing that you can lock down, that you can settle in your entire life. Nothing, absolutely nothing is more important. Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So if you don't have Jesus, it doesn't matter what you have. You have the whole world and you don't have Jesus in your heart as your Savior, then it's absolutely worthless. You really have nothing. And I want you to understand that this eternal security doctrine, some call it once saved, always saved. I want you to understand that it is not a Baptist doctrine. I don't think Baptists ought to have doctrine. I don't think Presbyterians ought to have doctrine. Or Methodists ought to have doctrine. I think that every church that claims the name of Christ ought to have biblical doctrine. It's not what this person says or this person says or this person thinks or that person thinks. It is what the Word of God teaches. Biblical doctrine. In 1 John 5, 13, our key verse, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may no, not hope so, think so. You may know that you have eternal life. The good news is God provides both salvation and assurance. 
And that's what he wants us to have. We have a lifetime guarantee backed by God himself. And no matter what you do or fail to do, God will never disinherit. God will never disown you. You can break fellowship, but you cannot break relationship. God is your father, and you are his child. And he will always be your father, and you will always be his child. But now let me, let me just say this, because somebody may just hear a few words and take it out of context and say, well, the pastor is teaching the universal fatherhood of God. That's what the liberals out there want to teach, that, that everybody has God as their father. You know what the Bible says, some people have the devil as their father. You're, you're not saved because you're an American. You're not saved because you go to church and grow up in a fine Christian home. We don't believe in the universal fatherhood of God. The only way for God to become your father is for you to come into his family through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And there's no other way of salvation. Some would say, well, I, you know, I'm afraid that something will happen and I just, I can't make it if, I'm just too weak, and I'm afraid that my salvation somehow won't make it to the end. I remind you again that salvation is not what you do. It's what God has done for you in Christ. And your part is to accept and receive. And the glorious news is that if you will give your heart to Christ, he will save you instantly, he will be with you continually, and he will keep you eternally. And that promise is what will give you the assurance to fight those battles, to cope with whatever life throws at you. The assurance and confidence to work in your church and to serve God faithfully. In Ephesians, we're reminded that we are chosen and adopted. Now keep in mind, God pursued us. We didn't pursue God. God wanted us. We didn't want God. You see, we need to understand that salvation is all God's initiative. Had it not been for God, nobody would have ever been saved. We weren't seeking him. He was seeking us. We weren't wanting him. He was wanting us. We weren't loving him. He was loving us. I love the wonderful word adoption. What a beautiful word. And then there's so many stories in this church family. We have so many families in our church that have adopted a child or children. And I always enjoy listening to those beautiful stories and just feasting in the love that these parents have for these adopted children. The Bible, and that's, that's our guide, the Bible tells us that we were once estranged from God, lost sinners. We were spiritual orphans. And in God's grace, God wooed us. God chased us. God wanted us. God loved us. So now, because of God's love and grace through Christ, we're no longer spiritual orphans. We have been made a part of God's family. 
Not an orphan, a son, a daughter of God. And the cost, and we must never forget the cost. The cost of our adoption was the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. Adoption is a family word. We are through Christ, faith, family, and friends. See, we love to talk about faith, family, and friends because nothing is more important. But the only way we're faith, family, and friends is through Christ. It's through God loving us first and then providing the cost of our adoption, buying us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And now we are permanently his children. Permanently. We belong to God. And nothing can change that. Once his child, always his child. So we are God's adopted children. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And then Romans eight fifteen, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship and by him cry, Abba, Father. Once orphans, now sons and daughters of God. Once alienated, estranged, separated, now we can call God Father, Abba Father. And that is such a, a, a loving word, not a formal word, a loving word that some translated Daddy. That now we are adopted into God's family and we are His child so close to Him and so fixed in that permanent relationship that we can call him daddy. We have a new name. We have a new family. We have a new purpose. We have a new power. We have a new identity. God says in the Bible, it's, we're a new creation. Now, how do you know that you know you're saved? And I want you just to, if you, got, if you take notes, you need to jot these down because when it's over, I want all of you to be convinced that you know that you know you're saved and that you can never lose your salvation. So how do you know? Number one, you know by the word of God. You see, in the Bible, God personally speaks to us through his word. Do you know that? Do you understand that? That's why it's so important for you to pick up your Bible and open it. You see, some, some Baptists think that when you carry a Bible to church, that that's how you learn the Bible. By holding it or sitting on it, osmosis, something happens and it kind of seeps into your life. But that's simply not so. But God wants to speak truth into our lives from his word. And as he speaks truth into our lives, that's when we become assured of our salvation. See, we're made safe by the blood of Christ. We're made sure by the word of God. The Bible tells us that God is the God of foreknowledge. In other words, God saw me as a nine-year-old boy 
and little church out from Clanton, Alabama, who asked Jesus Christ to come into his heart and life. God saw that before it ever happened. God knew that I would trust Jesus Christ. And when God saw me trust in Christ, it was not new to him. He knew that. But he also knew that I was not only trusting Jesus then, but I would have Jesus forever. And that one day I would be like Jesus. Wow. God saw all that in a nine-year-old boy. God sees the past and the present and the future as though they are one and the same. God knew two important things about me before I was ever born. Number one, he knew that I would be saved. And number two, he knew that I would ultimately be like Jesus. You say, well, Pastor, I don't think you're that much like Jesus now. He's not through with me. Excuse me. I'm still under construction. But there's not a doubt one day I'll be like Jesus. I know you wives can't grasp that thinking about your husband being like Jesus. But even your husband one day, if he knows Jesus, will be like Jesus. And God has already seen it. What does that mean? It is, it's already done. It's a done deal. It's an established fact. It cannot not happen. I'm not supposed to say not, not in a row, but it can't not not happen. The assurance that we have. The fact, but now listen to me before some of you get, get mixed up here. The fact that God already knows does not take away my free choice or my responsibility, nor does it diminish in any way the sovereignty of God. You see, that's, that is something that is a mystery, a mysterion, the, the mystery that in this life we can't figure it all out. And if you find anybody who's figured it all out, just smile. Because you know evidently something they don't know, that they hadn't got it figured out. But we know that we can trust God, and we don't have to. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable serving a God that I could understand. Would you? I, I mean, I want God to understand a lot more than I understand, and know a lot more than I know. God knows everything. And we, we see through a glass darkly now, but it'll all come together. And when it comes together, we're going to spend a lot of time in heaven just rejoicing over the fact that God had it right from the start, that he knew what he was doing, and that he had a plan, and that he had a purpose. Romans eight twenty nine for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So if you're saved, you're predestinated to be like Jesus Christ. How in the world can you lose your salvation if you are predestinated to be like Jesus Christ? You can't. And that's another reason we know that we can know that we're saved. You say, well, Pastor, those words justification and sanctification and glorification, are just, they're just big words. and I don't understand all of that means. Let me, let me give you one word that sums those three words up. Adoption. You can understand that word. Adoption. It's because we have been justified. It's because of what Christ did on the cross. Now we are justified just as if we've not sinned. God sees 
us in the righteousness of Christ. And now he's working in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ. So that one day we will be glorified. One day we will be like Jesus is. And all of that is because we have been adopted into God's family. We are his children. And he wants the best for his children. And he has already determined what the best is. And it's already, as far as God's concerned, already happening. You see, we don't have to know everything's going to happen out there. What we need to know most of all is that the end is going to be good. The end is going to be good. It's going to be what God planned. So in, it, in eternity past, God predestinated that we would be adopted into God's family. Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before he ever created the world, he chose us to one day be like him. He predestinated us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. I tell you, you know that you know you're saved because of the word of God. This book is true. It's an error without error. You can trust it. And it teaches eternal security. Secondly, you can know by the, the words of your prayers that you're saved. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God. In the Bible, God's talking to us. In prayer, we get to converse with God. And if you've got a healthy relationship, if it's a marriage or a parent and a child, whatever healthy relationship you have, there must be two-way conversation. That's why the Bible says we're to pray about everything. My favorite verses over in Philippians, my translation is, worry about nothing, pray about everything, and that'll get you through anything. We're to have an attitude of prayer. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean that we're constantly wording prayers? It means that we have an attitude of prayer. That we're in constant conversation with our Lord. You see, every Christian should have a longing for God. A longing for fellowship with God. A longing to, to talk to God. And prayer is one of the best ways to express that longing. In fact, if you never pray, you're going to have a hard time convincing God or anybody else that you long for God. But prayer is that way. Now, if you don't pray regularly, or if your prayers are just mindless rituals, then you need to just check up because Satan may have deceived you and you may not have salvation. Because, you see, there are only two categories. You're either... In Adam, or you're in Christ. If you're in Adam, you're lost. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You see, if I could lose my relationship with God, then Jesus would lose his relationship with God. And you know that can't happen. So we know we're saved because of the words of our prayers that we long to talk to God and pour out our hearts to God and love God through prayer. Number three, you know by the worship of your heart. 
Psalm 122.1, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Yes, you do have some responsibility in getting close to God. See, if you're not experiencing closeness, it may be your fault. In fact, I can almost promise you that it is. I told you before, if you don't feel as close to God as you once did, guess who moved? God didn't move. We move away from him. But we have some responsibility in getting close to God. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, if worship, if all worship is to you is you come in here and sit and stare and get it done and then go live your life like you want to live it, well, you haven't worshiped God. You haven't gotten close to God. See, don't get the idea that other people can worship for you. I can't worship for you. These musicians, singers can't worship for you. See, some of you want to gauge the service by, you know, how good is the music or how good is the sermon. You gauge whether or not you got with God in this place. And that's your responsibility to get close to God, regardless of who's preaching or what, who's singing. You have responsibility. See, if it's not a good service, who do you blame? <laughs> Probably me, usually. But if we don't have a good service... Could it be you? You didn't get close. You chose to sit there and stare. You chose to have a preoccupied mind. Or you chose to focus on the wrong thing. See, some of you are sitting there, you 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 just barely in it all. And any little distraction, we lose you. So understand that you have a real part in worship And the kind of experience you have here when you come into this room, listen to me, has more to do with you than it does with me. Can you get that? Can you get that? If you know God and you belong to God, you want to worship him both privately and publicly. And let me tell you something. If coming to worship God is a chore and something you really don't want to do and something you dread to do, trust me, you may not be saved. While I'm out here and you brought it up, I'm going to go even further. These who come to church in shifts, some come every three weeks, some come once a month, some come every other week. Trust me, you may not be saved. Do you know, and it's not just because I'm a preacher. Anytime I have to miss church, and that's probably not but one time a year, if that much, I feel like something is missing out of my life. I don't even like to miss this church because there's something special here that when I'm not here, I miss that. See, I don't come to church because I'm the pastor. If I were not the pastor, I hope I would be the best member this church had. Because I come because I want to come. Because I want to worship God. Because I want to be with God's people. You women that have to try to make your husband come, you need to pray for him because he's probably not saved. Because one of the ways you know you know God is because you want to worship God 
privately and publicly. And our relationship with God is one that you can know and it is one that you can feel. See, when we come to church, we don't leave our brains at home and we also don't leave our feelings at home. You ought to feel something when you worship God. And be careful knowing that, that those feelings can fool you. Because if you feel something that moves you closer to God, that's a good feeling. You can feel and you can know as a part of worship. I want to say some things about the importance of the church. And I may do a whole series on this next year sometime because it's so important that, that you understand because today's generation is in the spirituality, not the organized church. And they think they can have a meaningful relationship with God without the church. And the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible says that you, you can't have Christ the head without Christ the body. That Christ the head and Christ the body cannot be separated. See, Christ is the head of the church. Whose church is this? Jesus' church. You think it's Fred's church? You're just as wrong as you can be. It's Jesus' church. Who should we want to please here? Jesus. He's the head, but who's the body? We are the body. We are the body. Say that. We are the body. We can't separate the head from the body. That's why church is so important that when we gather as the family of God, we're the body of Christ. The Christian and the church, I believe, are inseparable just as Christ and the body are inseparable. You say, Pastor, are you saying that you cannot be saved without the church? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Jesus set up the church as a necessity in the lives of Christians. I'm saying that you can swim to Europe, but it's a long ways and the sharks are bad. I'm saying to you that if you try to make it in this world without the church, I can be a predictor, I can be a prophet, and I can tell you, you're not going to make it. I can tell you that I need the church and that you need the church. And I can tell you that God made us to need the church. Who knows our needs better than God? And so God set up the church. And those who are wondering, the church, the church is just going to go out of business one of these days. Not the Lord's church. He will protect it. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now listen to me. There is no place on this earth that will strengthen your assurance, the assurance that you're saved, like the church. Because God knew what we would need, and God planned it, and God set it up. So as we listen, and as we learn, and as we love within the family of God, God assures us 
of our salvation. We can't live for God in isolation. We're not isolated saints. We're family. Family needs each other. We need each other. Someone said it this way. To depend on God's people is to depend on God. And to depend on God is to depend on God's people. God uses the church to grow us and to mature us and to change us through one another. That's what's so wonderful about the church. See, that person you sit by, you say, How did, why did I get by that person? That may be just the person God's using to change you. Because we all have different gifts and different temp, temp, temperaments and different personalities. Because God is using us to grow each other up. To help mature one another. And I also believe that everything this church needs, God's already provided through the people who are part of the body. All the gifts, all the money or whatever we need, it's already here because God has provided it for us. Now let me very sweetly get into your business, into your face and speak from what I believe is God's absolute truth. To neglect the church is to neglect God. To neglect the church is to disobey the Father. To say it another way, you cannot love Christ without loving his bride church. You can't do that. Say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. You can't do that. If you love one, you love the other. Ephesians 1.22, he placed all things under his feet. Put him head over everything, the church, which is his body. We belong to him. He's in charge. And when we fail, listen, when we fail to make the, the church an absolute priority in our life, we make one of the biggest mistakes we will make on this earth. Now, many of you don't believe that. If I could speak that to our whole church, and I believe it's truth from God's word, and they heard it with their heart, it would revolutionize our church, and starting Sunday week, or maybe a month, we would be in six or eight services to hold the people. But why do we have thousands not here this morning? Because today they got a better deal. Or they slept late. Do you hear the excuses I hear for not coming to church? I mean, it's... Do you know, I've been doing this 47 years. It's been 30 years since I've heard a new one. And it doesn't matter what city you're in, it's the same excuses. I think it's because the devil is the creator. He puts them in their minds. But the wisest thing you can do is make the church a priority in your life. You need it for your marriage. You need it for your parenting. Your, your children need it. You need it for your own personal life. You need it because God said, that's how I've designed you. 
So one of the most practical ways of knowing that you know God and that you're going to end up one of these days in heaven is to join the church and make it an absolute priority in your life. And if I had all 8,000 some odd members here this morning, do you know what I would like to say with everything within me? If we had all 8,500 of them here, I would say stop dating the church and fall in love with it instead. Stop dating the church. Fall in love with the family. That's what God made you to be a part of. Well, let me get to the, to the... Well, let me say this before I leave that section. If you, if you can make it without the church, then you probably are not a born-again believer. If you're a born-again believer, you probably already know deep within. If you'll search it out, if you'll think about it, if you'll pray it through, you already know you can't make it without the church. And that's why many of you are coming, because you know you can't make it. You just, you just don't understand that you've got a responsibility, and you make the church what it is in your life. And you decide how close to God you want to get. But you already know that you can't make it without the church. Then let the church be the church in your life. And get involved. Serve God through the church. Serve one another. Love one another. Make it your absolute priority. Number four. You know you're saved by the works of your life. Say, so wait a minute, Pastor. Wait, wait a minute. You've been saying all along it's not works. Good works have nothing to do with getting saved, but they have everything to do with living saved. Luther, listen to what Martin Luther said. Faith alone saves. And nobody knew that better than Martin Luther. But the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves. But if it's saving faith, it's never alone. It leads to good works. A child of God will produce good works. A saving faith is a working faith. Read the book of James. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? If you claim you've got faith and no works, what good is your faith? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. God bless you. But does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Cadaverous, not comatose. Dead. Funeral. First John 2, 3. We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a... You already knew that. See, we know you can't belong to God and not obey God. If we can live our lives any way we want to live it and not bother to check with God then we're a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. One man said it this way. We cannot experience high levels of assurance with low levels of obedience. I like that. I wish I'd have said that. We can't, don't expect high levels of assurance if you've got low levels of obedience in your life. If we know God, we have an attitude of obedience. Verse 4 says, Obey his commands. Specific. Verse 5, obey his words, those principles that you obey. And our motive for obedience shouldn't be I have to, but I want to. And the more we pursue God by our thinking and our feeling and our doing, our serving, our loving, the more we experience the assurance of our salvation. You listen to me. Bottom line, listen. We know that we belong to God because of the life that we live and the love that we show. I've given you a lot of different tests and examples from the Bible. But the quick short test is love and obedience. Are you loving Jesus? Are you loving God? Is he a priority in your life? Are you obeying God? Are you serving God? That's the short test for whether or not you belong to God. And then the Bible says if we know God, we will practice loving one another. 1 John 2, 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 14 of chapter 3. We know that we pass from death to life. We know that we become Christians. How do we know that? Because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. You know, before we got saved, we were estranged from God, dead in our trespasses and sins. And if we're not loving one another, we remain in death. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then here's, here's the, after all those verses, and there are many more, here's the wrap-up. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you pay your debts, if you go to church, if you try to live a good life, is that what it says? What, what does it say, the characteristic? If you love one another. Because let me tell you something. You can be a good moral person and you can pay your debts and be an upright citizen, even a powerful citizen in the city. But if you don't have love in your heart, you don't belong to your father because he is love. God is love. That's who he is. That's the core of his being. That's his character. And if we're going to be his children, we're going to be like him. We're going to love one another. 
And when he says love one another, it's not pick and choose. It's not love the ones who are like you. It's love the ones who are different from you. It's not love the ones you, you run with and you have similar interests. It's loving the irregular people. It's loving the hard to love people. It's loving the up and outs and the down and outs. Love one another. Number five, we've got to hurry. We don't want to make this four sermons. You can know by the warfare of the devil. A lady came to Dr. R.G. Lee, a great pastor of the past, and said he preached on the devil. And she said, Dr. Lee, you preached on a personal devil. I don't believe in a personal devil because I've never met him. Dr. Lee says, honey, how can you meet him when you're going in the same direction? Well, the devil is your worst enemy. And the more you know God and the more you love God and the closer you get to God, the more the devil will attack you. If the devil is giving you fits, you ought to smile because he knows you belong to God and you're trying to get close to God. Because let me tell you, every time you try to get close to God, the devil is going to come after you. And if you were the devil, you'd be that smart, wouldn't you? You would not mess with those who weren't worth anything, weren't doing anything worthwhile. Well, the devil who's very smart is your worst enemy, and the closer you get. Who is the one who accuses you? Who is the one who reminds you of your forgiven past? Who is the one who put, puts doubts in your heart about the truth of God's word? Who's the one who keeps telling you you're not saved? Who keeps telling you you're a hypocrite? That's all coming from the devil. You see, as a Christian, when your sins in the past are forgiven and under the blood of Christ, God will never, ever bring those sins up again. And every time they're brought up, it's the devil bringing them up. But I want you to know that the devil is a defeated enemy. God prevailed. Jesus won. And we, because Jesus won... We win now and eternally. If Satan's bothering you, take it as a compliment. And if you want to, I, you, I gave you permission. If he really gets after you, tell him to go to hell. That's his home. That's not profanity. That's where he lives. Tell him to go home. Number six, you know by the words of Jesus, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And that's assurance right there. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That's assurance. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Isn't that glorious? I shall lose none of those he's given me, but raise them up all on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up the last day. I know you've heard preachers that don't preach this, but I cannot understand how anybody can take the Word of God just as it is and come up with a doctrine that says you can be saved and lose it. Friend, if you ever get it, you've got it. Not because Fred said but because God said. And he said it over and over and over. 
John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. That's us. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Remember, we're in Jesus' hand. We're in God's hand. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The devil's got to go through all that to get to us. And he cannot do it. When do we get eternal life? When you die? No. When you believe. When you believe, you have eternal life. I tell you the truth, John 5, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have, not could have, has eternal life and will not be condemned. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. He that was dead is now alive, and he's alive forever. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus says eternal life is now, present tense, no longer condemned. We've crossed from death unto life, no longer dead in our sins. We are alive in Jesus Christ. So we know we're saved by the words of Jesus in Scripture. And we know we're saved by the words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. What God required, the work of redemption, has been finished. Our sins paid in full. So we know we're saved. Because the debt's been paid. And then validated by the resurrection that God had accepted what Christ did on the cross to pay for our sins. Hebrews 10, 14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus died once and for all and I am perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we know by the words of Jesus in Scripture, we know by the words of Jesus from the cross, and we know by the words of Jesus in his prayers. I love the song, Someone is Praying for You. You can know that you have someone praying for you. John 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but those you've given me, for they are yours. We belong to God. He is our Father. We've been adopted. All I have is yours. And yours is mine. And glory has come to me through them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. What a, what a word of assurance. God, Jesus, is our protection. And then verse 20. And you can put your name in verse 20 because he prayed for you. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message. That's all of us who came later, after Christ came, after the Bible was written. All of us who will believe. You see, Jesus is the one who prayed for our salvation. And every prayer that Jesus prays, God answers.
I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. That's what Jesus said to Simon. I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Did he bobble? Did he make some mistakes? Yes. But did his faith fail? No. The chance of his faith failing after Jesus prayed for him? Zero. Zero. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through Christ because he ever lives to intercede for them. Now, watch this. Not because of his prayer in Scripture, but his prayer on the cross, but his prayer right now. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father doing what? Praying for us to be sure that we're going to make it. He's praying that we will be protected from the evil one. And his prayers are going to be answered. It's as good as done. But what a blessing to know that he has, we have an intercessor. That every time we mess up, instead of the judgment of God, Jesus says, that's one of mine. That's one of mine. I paid for his sins. Past, present, future. One of mine. 1 Peter 3, 5, Praise be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We have salvation forever. A living faith. And we will be protected from the evil one. Because our father is committed to that protection. I don't know about you, but I would do anything I could to protect my daughters, my grandchildren. Anything possible. But I'm imperfect. I can't always protect them. But God is perfect and he can protect them. Now, with all this on assurance, I, want you to, I do not want you to misunderstand this. I'm talking to born-again, heaven-bound believers. Not to the unsaved, because if you're counting on anything other than a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ to save you, my friend, you're lost, lost in your sins. A performance-based religion offers eternal insecurity. A Jesus-based relationship offers eternal security. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 